standard issue. Today we'll be throat clearing about Nazis. <laughs> Nazis don't like them. No. Do not like them. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 232 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend my little niece called me Auntie Mick for the first time. Uh, still a little bit heart melty to be honest, it was so cute. Oh, that is nice. It was potentially a little bit weird because we were both wearing shower caps at the time, but you know, I was willing to go with whatever she wanted to go with. <laughs> Why were you wearing shower caps? Because it amused her. Oh, <laughs> she's two and a half. Okay, fair enough. I had like the opposite end of that. When my nephew was little, he absolutely point blank refused to call me Auntie Hannah. Just used to call me Hannah. Mm. And everyone was like, say auntie, say auntie, say auntie. And eventually he started calling me Auntie Hannah when he was about six. And he sent me a birthday card last week that just said Hannah in it. Oh. No auntie. Oh. But I think he sees you as a mate, which is, is very cool. But I think also you do, I, for some people, I don't always call my aunt and uncle auntie and uncle anymore. I do quite often just call them Mary and Poise. I call them auntie if if it's necessary yeah. to call them auntie, because in our family there's loads of people with the same name. But no, except the couple that are quite elderly and traditional that I still call auntie because they seem to like it. Yeah. Yeah, I think mine would kick off if I dropped the auntie. They're quite into calling themselves Lyra's great uncle and auntie, but Lyra's cuter than me, so, you know, fair play. <laughs> she's adorable particularly when she's you know posing as a 1970s scientist got the new <laughs> got the new photos back <laughs> send you guys a little uh whatsapp later oh please do i'm hannah dunleavy and i've got shit done now then please bear in mind that you're talking to me who has a syndrome what kind of shit are we talking about <laughs> Oh, a huge variety of shit. None of the stuff you're talking about. I told you I had a week off, so I wrote a list with 35 things on it that needed doing. 35. Mm-hmm. Do you have a guess how many I got done? 34. 35. No, I got 20 done. I mean, some of them were quite big jobs. That's, some of that's... them were quite time consuming. To tell my bathroom floor. Also put my Christmas tree up. Just because oh. I was putting the box under my bed and I thought, what the fuck? Why don't I just put it up rather than put it away for like three days and then get it out again? Is it wearing a nice wicker skirt? <laughs> it's not. Was one I, of your jobs? That was one of the jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Take that to a charity shop. It was. And it's done. Don't regret a minute of it. I'm Jen Offord and I own an overlocker. How are your hems? They're so tidy. It's I don't know what that unbelievable. means. They're just, they're fucking lovely, is what they are. <laughs> and it's a th- if you look at a seam on something you're wearing on the inside of it, you'll notice yep. probably that there will be like a very uniform stitch over the edge of it all the way across. And basically right. what it does... I've got a jumper on, but I'm going lower. Basically what it does oh, is it, um, it stops it from fraying, is what it does. So if you make your own clothes... Uh, and you use like whatever fabric obviously most of the stuff that I have I'm a bit like as soon as I wash that it's it's gone (laughs) it's all over that lovely skirt I made is is dead to me so oh is it oh no 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 it's it's not yet but I haven't washed it yet as soon as I wash it it will be unless I go over it it. with my overlocker which I now will so exciting times it's going to mean that my clothes will fingers crossed withstand the test of washing which is crucial i think hannah we're gonna have to come up with a new nickname for tatty jen (laughs) 
Talking of aunties, my auntie Tina always had an expression when she looked at fabric that she didn't like. She'd always say, oh, you could spit through that. I like then. that. I might face that in. That's a good one. It's when you touch <laughs> it and you you feel that even just the slightest friction might make it burst into flames. That's you're like, <laughs> Coming up, I speak to Lizelle Tourette, Associate Professor of Performance at the University of East London about neurodiversity in the arts. I chat to Ruth Brock, CEO of the Hygiene Bank, about hygiene, poverty and what they are doing to combat it. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, we're talking heading, jabbing and putting. It's quite violent sounding, isn't it? And in Rated or Dated, of all the films in all the world, I had to walk into this one. (laughs) I'd imagine that's enough information. (laughs) But in case it's not, we're watching 1942's Casablanca. But first, what the actual dickens, all hail Malala and pass the family bag of crisps. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Slightly less stressful than a Black Friday inbox. Basically reminded me to unsubscribe to all of the things I subscribe to. Did you go for anything? I wanted to get something that no longer could be bought because everyone had already bought it so um which was like a skincare thing it was like a posh skincare product uh mm. so it's probably no bad thing that i was unable to spend loads of money on it and apart from that i think i bought like a little bit of fabric that's 15 percent off but no i steered clear of most of it this year last year i went absolutely fucking nuts but i think it's because i was quite bored and didn't think anyone would ever <laughs> buy my flat this year, I feel like it had a slightly different... Not to get into the misery, like, too early here. I don't want to peak oh, too bring soon. bring it on, Jen. We may as well get settled. I did feel like there was a bit of a different vibe to it this year. It did feel a bit like, well, is this a good deal, really? Do I just want to spaff money on this nonsense? Mm. Like, I've got a fucking heating bill to pay, so, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, it didn't stop them shilling, though, did it? I guess, I mean, that is their business, but yeah. My friend Laura was really funny. She said she was inundated with Black Friday emails and her favourites were the ones from pet companies addressed to her cat. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, I'm not going to lie to you, Mick. This is a miserable story to kick us off. And it is part of a growing trend of misery that we're seeing week in, week out as we look at the news. And it's one that we've spoken about before and that we'll be coming back to in this very episode. That theme is the stark and indeed bleak reality of poverty, a blight which has become immeasurably worse under 12 years of Tory government. This time we are looking at housing. Two weeks ago we were horrified by the news that a coroner had found that two-year-old Awab Ishak died a completely preventable death in 2020 as a result of a respiratory condition caused by mould in his family's home. Mm. Mould that had been repeatedly reported to landlord Rochdale Borough-wide housing by the boy's father and mould which the landlord did not see fit to take any action over. Now it has been reported that a woman in her 50s who's suffering from potentially terminal lung disease is suing her landlord in a test case over claims that the disease was caused by mould in her home. The woman is on a waiting list for a lung transplant, requires constant oxygen and may only have 18 months to live. 
She's among an estimated 320,000 private renters living with mould in addition to 116,000 living in social housing. It is a Dickensian problem in 2022. Mould, which occurs due to elevated levels of moisture and poor ventilation, can cause a number of health problems, many of which are respiratory and can be serious. This is not news. We know this. We also know that poorly heated properties can be worse affected, which sounds pretty miserable going into a winter in which so many households will be worried about whether or not they can afford to turn on their heating. Totally. And I've seen pictures doing the rounds of the kind of black mould that is investing these properties and it's just horrific that people are expected to live like that everyone's lived in somewhere like you know where there's a little bit of mold in in the windows you know if you live in an old property that's not uncommon at all but like the the pictures of this mold that are on the news websites reporting the stories Mm -hmm. like it is horrendous how anyone especially in social housing you know, we're not talking about like ne'er do well, like slum landlords or whatever. This is like the housing association mm. who've let it get to that point. It's abhorrent. It really is abhorrent, and it isn't going to get better, as you've just said. As we head into a winter where people will be scared to put their heating on. We had it pretty mild for a while, but it is proper cold now. Oh God, yeah, and it does. You know, it does. It does feel miserable, doesn't it? Like, I'm in a relatively privileged position and I do have conversations about, like, whether or not we're going to turn the heating on and, like, you know, you do, you're very conscious of it, Mm. aren't you? Even in a relatively privileged position, you're very aware that every time you turn the heating on, you are literally burning your money. Yeah. Oh, I'd like to say that uh, I'm going to have a little story where you can get out the party poppers and stuff, Uh, but but not so much. Although it is a story about a lot of women coming together to make change. That's always a positive thing. Because, yeah, on Sunday, Pakistani female education activist, Nobel Peace Prize laureate and all-round top bird, Malala Yousafzai, and a coalition of more than 40 civil society organisations joined Afghan women leaders on a march for freedom for Afghan women and girls in London. Simultaneous marches took place in Canada and the United States, and there are marches to follow in other countries. You might be thinking, hang on, you've wanged on about Afghanistan and the plight of women and girls there quite a bit recently, Mick, and you would be right. I make no apologies for my wanging, and I will wang again, I tell you, because we should all be wanging on about this. Indeed, Action for Afghanistan, which organised the march, hopes this is the start of a global movement for Afghan women and girls and renewed media and political focus. And shit me, as women and girls in Afghanistan become increasingly more oppressed by the Taliban, it really needs to be. Malala, who was shot by the Taliban for supporting girls' education, accused world leaders of going silent, saying, quote, Being fragmented in their response has allowed the Taliban to increase their oppression of women and girls. Each of us who have the freedom to speak must not look away. We must call on our leaders to act with urgency. The Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan has led to a 28% decrease in women's employment in the country, according to the United Nations, and rates of domestic violence, forced disappearances, torture of peaceful women protesters and other forms of gender-based violence have risen sharply since the group's return to power, according to Amnesty International and other human rights organisations. 
Sarah Zaidi, Executive Director of Action for Afghanistan, who you heard me talking to at the end of August, said the campaign groups behind the protest are planning to deliver a letter to Rishi Sunak. It's our Prime Minister, just in case you were wondering whether just as we come to December, we've got a new one. Not yet. Still in. Asking him to lead the call for a global conference and to establish a specific asylum route for vulnerable Afghan women. Absolutely. Yes, please. Although I've got to say, as much as I hope this happens, looking at the way that our country treats people seeking asylum looks a little bit unlikely, Mm. doesn't it? So I'm going to finish with what Malala said, because she said it better than I ever could. She aimed these words directly at the UK government. Step forward more boldly and live up to your claim to be a global champion for girls' education and gender equality. I think it was it last week. It was announced that they were returning to Sharia law. Famously, women don't do so well (laughs) out of that. It's not great for many people if we're, no, if we, you know, we're being really confident about it. It's not for me, shall we say. <laughs> oh, Mick, would you like some good news? Yes, please. I mean, it is tinged with a little bit of sadness in that former health secretary, Hat Mancock, made it as far as the final as well. Sadness? Pure fucking rage. I'm yeah. booming. Yeah. Nonetheless, congratulations to European champion, former lioness and now queen of the jungle, Jill Scott, who became the winner of I'm a Celebrity at the weekend. I'm not going to make this about Hancock, who said that he'd entered to show that politicians are real people, but I will just highlight his exit interview in which he told Anton Deck he'd done things he was embarrassed of, and I should fucking think so too. (laughs) Yeah, right? But I wonder if that's the 212,000 deaths from COVID-19 so far in the UK. He also said he was as capable as the next person of being serious. And again, you're like, I should hope so too, Matt Hancock, former health secretary, that you are capable of being serious as well. Anyway, Scott was overwhelmingly the public's favourite with a 47% share of the votes and said, I just can't believe it, I think... I'm going to owe my grandma a lot of money for 12 million votes. She also highlighted the camaraderie with her campmates, saying, we are one big team. I don't think there should be one winner. Tough shit, Jill. There is, and it's you. There is, and it's you. (laughs) I'm looking forward to seeing what Jill does next with her career. Fingers crossed that the ITV viewers who voted for her will take that same energy with them for her inevitable future punditry gigs. Oh, come on. Everyone loves female pundits, Jen. For real. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Again. Although that notion can, of course, fuck off. Again. Yeah. Now then, Kate Moss has long since backed away from her controversial quote, which was adopted by a number of pro-anorexia websites, saying it was just a jingle her pal used to say. She said some other stuff too, I'm sure, but it was hard to hear over the growling of her stomach. Look, (laughs) I'm not here to have a go at Kate Moss, because for all that is a fucking stupid thing to say, not least because co-op handcuffs, sea salt and Chardonnay vinegar crisps exist, albeit not for very long in my presence. There is no doubt that Moss was poorly treated during her heyday as a sentient clothes horse. Most models of that era were. Have a listen to Jen's excellent interview with Marianne Shine for more appalling information (laughs) on that. 
Moss, of course, was celebrated as the face and body of what was tagged heroin chic, which dominated the 1990s catwalks. And yeah, that's the kind of heroin that puts the horse into sentient clothes horse, rather than the kind of heroin we want our little ones to look up to, like Wonder Woman, Malala Yousafzai, or Jill Scott. Mm. But times have changed. Diversity is quite rightly big news, and indeed big books. So that's all behind us now, yeah? Nope. <laughs> With the headline, Bye Bye Booty, Heroin Chic is Back, Ugh. a New York Post article this month announced that Thin is in again. And there has been a glut, oh, wrong word, wrong word, Noonan, of crop tops and low-rise jeans in recent fashion shows, modelled by young women whose hip bones could slice a cheesecake. Not that they would like. <laughs> could eat it with both hands like I do. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. Back in 2017, the use of size zero models was outlawed by two of the major Paris fashion houses and a number of countries made, sort of lackluster really, attempts to ban size zero models from walking shows. I mean, size zero, the bar literally couldn't be lower, mm. although I'm not sure that we should be banning any size of human. And yet, here we are again, being told that bodies should fit clothes rather than clothes should fit bodies. And while middle-aged backlaxes like me and Jen are aware that the insidious voice in our head put there by years of social conditioning on arbitrary beauty standards should be told to jog right on, shit like this quickly gets a tight grip on social media. It never really went away, to be fair. Just rebranded itself as wellness. Yep. But it was making people, predominantly girls and women, sick then, and it is making them sick now. Hospital admissions for people with eating disorders in England have risen 84% in the past five years. It's pretty clear to me that body positivity only made a dent in brand marketing. Mere ripples on the surface rather than a deeper look at the dysmorphic, pernicious shit sold to women that tells us our bodies will never be good enough. But our bodies are not fashion to be reshaped on some designer's whim. We are constantly in flux. In fact, the only thing guaranteed about a woman's body is that it will change through phases of our lives, through the days of our cycle. And that is something extraordinarily beautiful. Yep. It is very, very depressing to see, isn't it? Like, whoever the fuck came up with heroin chic as a con... Like, it's it's not it's not a nice concept, is it? <laughs> it comes after the death of a fashion designer from yeah. a heroin overdose. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's been problematic since its initial use. There's been a lot of stuff doing the rounds about, like, apparently Kim Kardashian and her, her sisters um, have removed parts of their balm implants or something like that because they now want this like super skinny aesthetic or whatever and it's just like I don't I don't care mm. why are you sharing this information with us there needs to be some responsibility taken by publications like the the New York Post and various other places like just stop parroting this bollocks like if they they can do to their bodies what they want to do mm. to their bodies as long as we can all be honest and say to young girls that is a very hard look to achieve, realistically, without surgery. I mean, impossible, really. You can make your bum disproportionately bigger if you really, really, really exercise in a very, very, very specific way. But it's, yeah, like, to get that real kind of, like, it, it is basically not possible to really achieve that without surgery. So mm. I think, like, she can do what she wants as long as we're being fucking honest about it with young women and girls who are the people who are really going to be influenced by this bollocks. And I think they will be. I think they absolutely will be, because I think they are. 
there's plenty of evidence out there to suggest that they are massively influenced by this stuff. So we've got to stop the, like places like the New York Post fucking writing about it. It's not interesting to anyone beyond her how big her bum is. Yeah, and giving it oxygen. You're right. And it's that that idea that we can treat our bodies like clothes and can just change them. That is something that mm. if you are wealthy and have the inclination and the time and the money then sure, I guess you can do that. Although I think it smacks of a lot of damage there as well. Mm. But, you know, your average person, your average girl, your average woman cannot do that and should not do that. So you've had all these women like exercising very specifically to get a big booty. And then they're being told that actually now, now you're not fashionable. Well, then, so, then they'll starve themselves. It's yeah. so insidious. There's a beauty trend at the moment Lots of stuff I've seen on Instagram reels and stuff of how to get fake under eye circles so you look tired or like how you can do your makeup so you look like you've been crying. So you already look thinner and paler and all of that. And it is it all does the rounds that this whole aesthetic of being underweight and not underweight. That's not fair because some women are just naturally slender, but being a little bit unhealthy looking is fashionable. No, I remember the 90s and there were probably quite a few men who looked pretty unhealthy as well, to be fair. But Mm. there has never been a trend of like PS men, try and make yourselves look ill. Why do we want women to look ill? So we look weak. Like strength in women is is not valued, is it? It's a very, very weird concept to me that anyone would want to look unwell or that anyone would want other people to look unwell. I don't find that to be a nice aesthetic do you know what i mean like it's not it's not like aspirational so it's weird to me that anyone would actively want women to look unwell and i think it's exactly what you've said it's about diminishing them isn't it it's like it has to be yeah. look smaller weaker more vulnerable yeah and we should just be celebrating strengthening women and i feel this is like a huge backlash against the body positivity mm. movement which like I say, I feel like it's only rippled the surface when it comes to the fashion houses and how fashion is sold because it's it's huge money. They have to keep mm. changing it to keep bringing in the money. But I think it did start to make positive impact on a lot of women and girls. So there's been a huge backlash to that and also a backlash to women getting any kind of strength. And it's like, no, you need to make yourself look small, look weak, look vulnerable. That's the fashion. Fuck fashion. Yeah, I think you've read it, Mick, but the beauty myth is just like, read it. Everyone go and read it. And then maybe stop reading any more Naomi Klein because yes, she's, just, she's lost the plot. Just that one and then move on quickly. <laughs> but uh, it's it's like, yeah, it's fascinating. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Lizelle Tourette, Senior Lecturer and Member of the Centre for Performing Arts Development at the University of East London. She's a performance artist in her own right. What a beautiful name this is, Doris Latrine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She co-founded the Diploma in Performance Making for Adults with Learning Disabilities and Autism. And her one-woman act has been called Filthy, Dirty, Shameful, All Too Personal and at the same time Glorious. Thank you for joining us, Lizelle. Where to start with all of that? Well, that's brilliant. So, I know where yeah. to start. We first met back in the summer when you were doing promotion for 
a show called Not Fucking Sorry, which was doing a little run at the Soho Theatre and then was going on a little tour of the UK with the mm. Not Your Circus Dog Collective, which yeah. you directed. Could you tell me how that went? Yeah, well, it's a very good question. Well, um, we actually, we, we did a, a run uh, in the main house at Soho Theatre, full house, standing ovations, four and five star reviews. We then went to Leicester to the Attenborough Centre and we were going to be going to contact theatre in Manchester and to perform at the South Bank as part of Unlimited. But due to the Queen passing away, Mm. uh, we were supposed to be performing in the Queen Elizabeth Hall and our show was actually cancelled. But um, and also one of our actors did get COVID, so we didn't go to Manchester. So it was the tour that didn't quite happen. However, we are actually performing at the South Bank Centre on the 17th of December. It's a stunning, political, comedic, sexy, outrageous, confrontational, celebratory piece of cabaret theatre that I just I think, well, you know, as I say, we're getting five star reviews. So I just think if you fancy coming and Mm. be and be shocked and entertained then then yeah you can still come and see it shocked and entertained is exactly Um, what the theatre is for absolutely maybe a good place to start is how you got into this how did you get into this this line of work yeah so so just just to say do please do interrupt me if I'm if I'm going off on a tangent (laughs) um I've got um I'm actually neurodivergent myself I have ADHD and dyspraxia and dyslexia and that's already uh, totally taken me down a whole other way of thinking. <laughs> so just to say, which I should have said, is that Not Your Circus Dog Collective, everybody in it who is part of the company is either neurodivergent or ha- or and has a learning disability, which is really important mm. to say because that guides and informs how we work. It, it guides and informs the politics of the work, the aesthetics of the work, and the sort of, you know, the, the, the way we implicate the audiences and stuff. Just very briefly, so I, I, I actually trained originally as a drama teacher. I was, I was a drama teacher in a school. I ended up teaching as a lecturer at quite a well-known drama school, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, for about 10 years. Um, in the applied, there was an applied theatre degree, which is another term sort of for social engaged performance mm-hmm. and, and drama education. And... We would teach the students about theatre beyond theatre walls and and theatre by people who aren't usually represented by themselves mm. on stage in the mainstream or, or anywhere, really. And and I actually had spent a long time... I'd, I also taught in a school for children with learning disabilities and, and severe and multiple disabilities. And I just felt... You know, all drama schools, you know, they, they, there is an elite, you know, elite, you know, even to consider going to a drama school is is a privilege. Yeah. And we always worked with a wonderful, in fact, an ex-student of mine, Nick Llewellyn, who, who is now the artistic director of a company that we work with. We're an associate company of Access All Areas, an arts council funded company anyway. Nick used to come in and do some teaching for us and we talked a lot about the lack of access about where are the disabled people at Central. In fact, we did do a project previously with Grey Eye, but of course that's not learning disabled people. Mm. That's more sensory. 
Anyway, and then also this sort of stereotype, which is so offensive around if you've got a learning disability or if you're autistic, you can't do, you're less than, mm. you know, you you, you you don't understand, you know, you're in your own, you, you know. And, and so basically we managed through Central, we, we managed to get funding from the Leverhulme Trust and it's now continued. There's now funding from Sky Arts. I think the course is now in its seventh year. And we we set up and we won the Guardian of the Guardian Award for it, but we set up a diploma for actors, adults uh, with learning disabilities and autism to get training um, at Central. And I, I I did some research and I ended up returning because I left, but I returned and directed on the course, which was very much about re-representing you know this excluded this excluded group of people yep. by themselves so my practice is about enabling and, and that sort of stuff and equ- having an equity in the room and at the same time I was making my own Doris Latrine work which was cabaret it was feminist it was about eating disorders actually but in a very comedic way I'd begin with a headstand in a toilet and and you know <laughs> and I I returned and I knew that that cabaret people love cabaret people want to go out and enjoy themselves but I also know that that's how you get the politics in yeah so we basically made a show called not sorry and then we ended up creating our own company we got support we and and uh we've got a producer Daisy Hale who's also neurodivergent who's an incredible person and does training for other producers in access and more and we ended up doing a run. We did an R&D at Soho Theatre. We did a run in 2018 in their little studio. And then we were invited back. And it's now called Not Fucking Sorry. And, and the piece uses popular forms of performance and TV. Like we, we parody Countdown, which I grew up with. Yeah. Um, throw in outrageous words like eugenics, like retard. And we have a moment where we have ableist comedians who lip, the actors lip sync people like Jimmy Carr and other ableist comedians when they use the term retard in such a derogatory way. Mm. And it moves into Steph who has Down syndrome, telling them to fuck off. I hope that's okay to swear. And she does this. (laughs) All you like, all you like. (laughs) And and she does this incredible. And it moves into hate. We, We do a an adult version, we parody children in need because of the infantilization of disabled people, but it's a dirtier version. And we have a moment where we pretend, we imagine we have lights on, we go back to the 1980s and we say, right, where are they all now? All these cutesy disabled people. And of course, what transpires is there's been hate crime and mate crime. Um, and I use it as a way of of testimony so that we have a moment where the audience have to sit and listen to about 20 names of learning disabled and autistic adults who have been murdered that we do not know about. And we've updated it actually after COVID because we've also included people who have been neglected and didn't get care or who were left alone because of COVID because they had a learning disability. What do you think the barriers are for neurodivergent people trying to enter the arts? Yeah, I think I think. Gosh, what, what what you remind me of is I've got the, the this word myth in my mind, and and I think about you know 
people's sort of mythical ideas of what performance is based on and what training is based mm. on and this sort of the power of the director and the power of the of the, the drama, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think, therefore, it goes back to that very basic social model of disability where it's about the people with the keys. It's about their attitudes. Mm. It's about the institution. So actually, the bar the barriers are those attitudes, the fear that is continued by those ableist people who've got the keys. I think when we when we made, gosh, several things, you know, the course that that was formed with Nick at, at Central, it's quite anti a traditional way of teaching theatre. It does, you know, Access All Areas does work with Netflix, just worked on a film called um, When I Was Famous, it was just out in September, that stars a, a, an autistic actor about about his journey, actually. They've just uh, been consultants on the new uh, comedy uh, with, I think, Katie, I can't remember the name of it. It's called, yeah, Ralph and Katie, really successful. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, so they've they've acted. So Nick's been working on on that. Well, sorry, what I'm trying to say is it's about two things. One thing, it's about really going against that traditional training. So beginning with, you know, because you're working with marginalised people who have, from day one of their lives, have been segregated. That that's that's the reality. They've been told they're not good enough. They've been told that they will never be good enough, and therefore they cannot access all these wonderful things around. I mean, I remember in the 80s, there was a whole discussion about people should be warned if a piece of theatre was going to be disabled-led just because it wouldn't be very good, you know. Oh, please. Exactly, exactly. The core of that is that if you want to have people acting, being on stage and being part of the industry, you've really, you know, those people have been so marginalised you, you know, you've got to do a lot of work on affirmation, on them owning the politics of the discrimination and of, of, of always being talked over and talked about and being stereotyped. So that is a massive reason. One of the one of the many reasons why that it's not because there's, no tra- there's not there's not many. There's not much training. There's still exclusion and there's still those ableist keepers. The other thing I just want to quickly say is that what's exciting about, I, in my limited experience of, of theatre now, you know, again, when I was younger, it was very sort of, you know, very text-based mm. stuff. Whereas if you're dyslexic or if you learn, if you engage in this world in a different way, now that, you know, one can make theatre, which perhaps doesn't have any talking or uses all different forms of medium. And, you know, that might be, you know, I'm thinking about Brecht sort of speaking directly out to the audience. It might be sort of montage. It might be, as I do, I take popular daytime TV shows because everybody watched Countdown. Yeah. So so I think what I'm trying to say is, is that in a way, now there's more opportunities happening because there's a whole breakdown perhaps happening of that traditional theatre and who can be an actor and who can't be an actor. I mean, that's sort of one side of yeah. the coin. That's, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because you're saying about how theatre, like 
this is how theatre works and that's the rule and, and you were saying it's different. As someone who works in the media, yeah. I think the media is also sort of, I, I would envisage, quite problematic here because it reflects opinions that people have that might not necessarily be accurate, but also because it relies on people being able to promote a show in a way yeah. that ne- they might not necessarily be able to do. I think that we would expect artists to be able to fit into our way of thinking. So I'm wondering what you think the media could do to help with this. Well, I think what you've just described is exactly what happens all the time. And I think there's that whole thing of um, that sort of, it's like a greediness, a sort of, oh, you know, a sort of privilege there. Even between our conversation right now, maybe there should be somebody else here supporting me or, or vice versa. Maybe there should be somebody here making sure that our conversation is ethical yeah and that we're not shutting each other down that I do feel able to sort of really converse as well as I can maybe and so when I make work we always again this is something that Access All Areas trains up and provides I always have a support I have have two support workers always we call them creative support workers I as a director whether I'm neurodivergent or not I'm accountable for, and sorry, this does link to what you've just said, but I'm accountable to the actors or to whoever I'm working with. Yeah. I need somebody to keep an eye out on my ethical process. Mm. And yet we are in an industry, of course, where people, it's based on power. You know, our industry, whether it's radio, media, theatre, it's based, and we, and we know that through yeah. all the Me Too, and it's based on power. People do what they want. They're not accountable. And I write about an ethic of care in the industry and in the rehearsal room. And that that sort of immediate kit, when we think about autism or learning, we think, oh, chaperone or, or, or support worker. It's like, well, actually, that is really good practice yeah. because it's not, it's not about talking for. It's about equity, making sure a space is equitable because we can't we can't do it all. Yeah. So I, I would say that there's an ethics that needs to be re-looked at, which is happening. You know, like when Access All Areas goes into TV studios and supports actors or when, you know, Ita O'Brien, who's our intimacy coordinator and, yes. you know, when, she's been on the podcast, in fact. Yeah, she's worked with us. I've worked with her quite a lot, actually, on the show. Again, there's an ethic of care. So I'm saying and this is what Daisy talks about as well, is about in the industry, because every... How many people in the industry are neurodivergent? Come on, in the uh-huh. performing arts industry, they're loads. We're all yeah. ADHD, and autistic, <laughs> but there's everything masking and afraid. Yeah. And in fact, sorry, and so even with the Arts Council of England, which I know people are quite critical of at the moment, and quite rightly so, however, finally, they are writing in, you know, there is funding for support workers now. There is. There is more recognition of the lack of funding and opportunity in the arts for 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 work with community yeah I think it's huge yeah so so I also want to ask you about audiences because obviously it's brilliant to get diversity on stage but diversity in the audience as well is great and I would imagine that an audience could cause all sorts of problems for somebody who was neurodivergent, either because they don't like noise or, or, you know, all sorts of things. So I wonder, should theatres be doing more to try to attract a wider range of people to watch 
as well as to participate in theatre. Again, it's a huge, it's a hu- another huge area. So basically, when 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 a piece of theatre is made, there is an access worker. That this does happen a lot with productions now. That somebody who is neurodivergent mm. or and has a disability will come in at certain points during the making of the show to make sure or to consult or to advise on things like around the lighting and the sound and the the sort of the form of it. So that's that's exciting. That's good, I think. When we made Not Fucking Sorry, which does have a sex bit at the end, just to sort of, because it's not all doom and gloom, but anyway, just to throw that (laughs) Uh, it's, It's outrageous and it's brilliant and it's wonderful. You know... When I make theatre, I don't make theatre just for me and the actors. And, and you know, we make theatre because we want people to see it, to feel it, to be moved by it, to be implicated in it. And therefore, that is where I begin. Yeah. So, we, you know, we don't we don't have like, what do you call it? Relaxed performances. If you want to make a noise or in fact, if you if somebody's phone needs to go, in fact, it, which did happen, and the audience all tutted, mm. whereas Adam went, fantastic, go on, pick it up, say hello, you know. So, again, it's about a certain, it just needs to be, those mythical rules, that, that sort of British theatre yeah. really need, I think, re-looking at about the quietness and the, but I also think, like I went to the to Soho last night, actually, to see the brilliant, um, they're called Shit Theatre, a brilliant feminist theatre duo, amazing. And I had to pay for childcare. I'm so privileged. So I think, yes, of course we want to get more. Like we did a lot of promoting. We worked with different day centres so that we would get people who don't usually come to Soho Theatre to see the show. There was a lot of outreach work we did, which is brilliant. But, you know, Emma, DJ, Steph and Adam, we, you know, we're talking about why aren't we taking this to church halls and to communities? Why is it still OK to get into the main, you know, the West End, the this and that? What, what, why aren't we going out to those? Because people can't afford to come in. Yeah. yeah. And I think as well with the West End audience, there's a kind of preaching to the converted about it to the certain degree of you know people who would who go to the theater whether or not they are like as liberal and as open-minded as they think they are they're possibly more open and liberal-minded than people who don't go to the theater I, i would say yeah uh, yes, but but just to say again very briefly what what's incredible incredible about our show which i was surprised at is is the, just linking it back to to people's misunderstanding and discrimination that their car- people carry around without realizing it is people are just so shocked and surprised at the le- at at the lack of awareness i mean i'm sorry i'm talking about everyday theater goers saying mm. this to me of how we manage to find a form to to make them confront their own um Again, there is a privilege. I think, yes, a lot of the ones, you know, it, it's, we do want to get more audiences in of people who don't often go to the theatre, but even the ones that do go, do you know what? There's not enough mm. diversity yeah, in, in those mainstream theatres still, whether it's women, whether it's, you know, you know, there there isn't, I think. So I think there's more work to be done. That's yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. 
So I have one one last question for you, which is if we've got someone, anyone listening to this who either themselves is neurodivergent or perhaps their, yeah. their child is and they want to get into the arts, what what do you think is the best advice that you could you could offer them? Send me an email. No, um, <laughs> I, I would I would say, well, I mean, there's, it, it, you know, it's so interesting. There's there's bound to be local community theatres wherever you live there, there's bound to be you know and whether you find about that by contacting your a school or a college or you know there, there's there's definitely going to be something if you go somewhere if you're learning disabled or autistic and you actually end up joining a group and you actually don't feel that you're being treated in an equitable way because of course even though there's wonderful community theatres going on for learning disabled people there's also quite difficult practice that's going on so there's just to throw that bit in as well so in fact you know what I would do you know everybody's on the internet now this theatre company Access All Areas yeah just google Access All Areas Theatre and they are London based but there are many recognised theatre companies for learning for disabled and autistic people yeah there there are around the country now for example mind the gap mm. hijinks lungha you know there's a lot there's also an organization called disability arts online and that is a directory as well as a magazine of what's available in terms of performing arts and arts for disabled people so disability art online there we go thank you ever so much for your time Lizelle this has been terrific thank you I'm joined by Ruth Brock, CEO of the Hygiene Bank Charity. Hi, Ruth. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Ruth, I first heard about the charity a few weeks ago when your research report made the headlines. The story made me cry and uh, immediately volunteered to start a local collection. So can you tell me a little bit about the charity and, and what you guys do? Sure, absolutely. So the Hygiene Bank is uh, the UK charity which is working to end hygiene poverty. And you know, like yourself, Jen, like many, many people like me, actually, when I applied for this role, one of the biggest problems facing us is that so many people just don't realise that hygiene poverty is a thing. So as a society, we have somehow normalised the conversation about food poverty and we've normalised the conversation about fuel poverty. But hygiene poverty, most people who are experiencing food and fuel poverty will already be experiencing hygiene poverty. And it is this kind of unseen um, poverty, which is uh, it's widespread, it's increasing, um, and it really, really has terrible impacts on people's day-to-day lives, their mental health, their physical well-being, their ability to be a part of society. And it's incredibly simple. It's, it's where you simply can't afford to access the basic hygiene and grooming products that most of us take for granted. And as you say, we produced this piece of research earlier in the autumn and it showed staggeringly that there are 3.1 million adults. So 3.1 million people just like you and I who are having to go without toothpaste and toothbrushes, who can't afford laundry detergent or deodorant. You know, the things that we just take for granted as necessary for our day-to-day lives 
it's having to choose, you know, between like period products for yourself and nappies for your baby, for example. It's having to use washing up liquid to kind of wash your hair and your body. It's having to dilute products to make them go much further than they really should or, or use products for, for the wrong purposes. And it means that there are children going to school, you know, with matted hair because there aren't enough hairbrushes or having to share toothbrushes. We had one family we helped where we got you know children their own toothbrush for the very first time and they took them to bed with them as if they were a new toy and you know that's just it is just simply unjust that in this day and age we are facing situations where families are having to make these kind of choices and so that's what the hygiene bank is is here to solve we are here to get products those essential products to the people who really really need them um but we're also here to campaign to end hygiene poverty for good because this simply isn't the kind of society we should live in Why is this happening when we have a benefit system which is supposed to be a safety net to capture the people who these kind of problems would impact? I mean, the scary thing about the data that we published earlier in the autumn is that uh, that data, you know, by the time we had sort of collated all that through YouGov and uh, written our report and published it, that data is actually many months old now. Mm -hmm. So what we are really worried about at the Hygiene Bank is that actually the problem is much, much worse than even that horrifying data suggests. But, you know, you're right. I mean, so and this is before the cost of living crisis really, truly hits. So, you know, we're really worried about what the winter is going to bring for people and and what that is going to mean for people and their choices around hygiene poverty. But look, you know, this is structural that even with, you know, the safety net that the benefit system is, is supposed to provide, it simply is not enough for people to be able to access the basics they need and we can see that right through the proliferation of food banks through warm banks being set up through and us and the the staggering increase in demand that the hygiene bank has had so we've got over 1100 um of community partners so those are the local charities that we supply product to to get to families you know refuges food banks schools homeless shelters that waiting list is over 1100 long now and we just can't keep pace with that demand and it's because people simply don't have enough to afford those basics but i think the other thing about the research as well as with other poverty is that it disproportionately impacts the most vulnerable so one in five people with a disability uh, will be experiencing hygiene poverty you're twice as likely if you're from an ethnic minority if you have three or more children 11 percent of young people aged 18 to 24 and of course that has the most awful impacts as well because it stops you going to school or university and therefore it's blocking your roots out of poverty and i think that is what's unique about this poverty is that it does stop you from kind of seeking the help you need and it stops you know those roots out for people and that actually something as simple as a deodorant for a teenager can make the difference about them going to college which means that suddenly they're going to be kind of looking at a much brighter future. Well two of the things that really struck me about the report was that as you say it means that that cycle of poverty becomes kind of like self-perpetuating it's a barrier to doing things that might help you out out of the poverty trap as it were as you say like for a teenager maybe you don't want to go to school if you don't have period products or you don't have deodorant but also for adults it's preventing them from doing things like going to work even right and and job interviews and and things like that so self-defeating right that you know that yeah i think it was you know 13 percent of people who said they've experienced hygiene poverty have avoided attending job interviews and of course you know that 
completely immediately kind of stops the potential route out for you. 12% of people avoiding attending work. And, and of course, that is completely understandable because the sort of embarrassment and shame that comes with this type of poverty, like, you know, the idea of having to go to work, not being able to have had a shower, not being able to have washed your hair, and, you know, feeling kind of, you know, embarrassed about the way that you look and smell. But, you know, the effects go much wider than that. I think it's over a third of people are not wanting to leave their homes. They're not sort of going to see friends and family. They're not wanting to sort of socialise in the way that many of us are able to take for granted. And of course, that has a profound impact on, on your mental health and well-being, which feeds the mental health crisis, which makes that things sort of spiral further. So yeah, it is this really kind of oppressive, insidious poverty, which is stopping people. And 50% of our respondents said that they were too embarrassed to ask for help. So, you know, you can just really, really tell how how oppressive this is. The information that you've had for your research implies that there is a huge amount of shame and embarrassment attached yeah. to this problem, which you can completely understand. Mm. Is it hard to get people to actually come to the hygiene banks and get things? How are you making sure that, that the products actually reach people, given there is that stigma attached to it? Well, I think there are two things there, really. You know, you're absolutely right that it is really hard to get people to reach out for help. And so one of the big things, you know, that, that I really want to work on and why these opportunities are so, so important is we just have to be talking about this more. The first step is that we have to raise awareness. We have to make this a conversation that we're all having so that people know that other people are experiencing it and that they can reach out for help and that they are not alone and that, you know, that we can help to give them a voice and to sort of be their voice whilst they're going through, you know, this really, really difficult time. I think the thing about the hygiene banks model, which which I hope is helping to reach people who are experiencing hygiene poverty is we work through other community partners where people may already be accessing help. So for example, I think a good sort of 20% of the charities that we supply product to are food banks. So obviously we know that a lot of people are already accessing food banks and um, women's refuges, mm -hmm. homeless shelters. Increasingly, actually, we're working with schools because, of course, schools know their families really, really well and you know, have sort of you know, parents coming in uh, you know, to kind of pick up their children. So it's very easy to supply products in that way. And, you know, again, people may find it easier to work with their kind of family liaison officer than go to a specific place just to pick up hygiene products. So I think that's the thing about our model, which I hope is helpful in that regard, is that it's it goes to sort of sources of help that people may be accessing for other you know for other issues that they're experiencing because of course these things are completely intersectional and I think the worry about the food bank thing is that it's brilliant that we're working through so many food banks because what we know is that if you are accessing a food bank because you haven't got enough food you've been going without hygiene products for a lot longer because the order tends to go very understandably you know you buy food you pay your bills and then you think about hygiene products so in reverse order you've been experiencing hygiene poverty for a lot longer than you've been going without food. We've had organisations like, for example, Bloody Good Period. You know, there's been quite a lot of focus on period poverty, for example, over yep. the, the last few years, which is a fantastic thing and obviously great. And we've seen attitudes around that shift massively. And obviously we know about food banks. There's a huge amount of media interest and, and, and discussion about the use of food banks. Why is it that when people donate to things like food banks, it doesn't necessarily register them. Oh, hang on a minute, people have got to wash as well. Why do you think that is? Honestly, I just don't think that we thought about it yet. And I would absolutely put myself in that camp, Jen. Like, you know, before I came across this role, I'm in a relatively privileged position now. When I was growing up, I was, a you know, as part of a family that was reliant on disability benefit. 
But in those days, in the 80s and 90s, even though we were reliant on that, there wasn't ever a problem about accessing soap and washing up liquid. You know, so things have obviously got a lot, lot worse. But I don't think that it has occurred to people very understandably that this is something that is confronting so many people in the world. And I absolutely understand the sort of sense of incredulity that, you know, that we're often faced with on kind of sort of social media, that people just simply can't comprehend this is even a thing. And, you know, if you look at sort of one product in isolation, you know, particularly sort of some of the brands are doing really great sort of basic essentials ranges, which are incredibly helpful and a really good move. But I think people look at one product in isolation and go, oh, but, you know, this product costs, you know, this small amount of money, surely this can't be a problem. Well, A, that is, you know, even a few pence out of a budget can be a huge problem for people in you know, the cost of living crisis that we're facing. But being none of us are reliant on just one product. This morning, I know for certain I have used deodorant and shampoo. I have used some makeup. I have used some moisturizer. I've used washing up liquid for my baby's bottles. I've used baby wipes. I've used nappies. And that's, and it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. Like none of us need just one product in the same way that we don't just need pasta. And I think people just have not yet had the opportunity to think about that cumulative effect and what that means for people with the kind of pressures on budgets that that people are facing these days. And so which brings me back to, you know, why raising awareness, why getting this as part of the national conversation is the first critical step to, to solving this issue. The other thing that I thought was interesting about the research, it is by no means just people on benefits who are experiencing this problem. I think the research said, is it 6% of the population one in 20 people who are are people who are working yeah i mean that is going to surprise some people because possibly people will have quite set ideas about the in inverted commas kind of people they think that this problem might impact on but it's it's much bigger than you would necessarily think right Absolutely, you know, and and it's about sort of, you know, what what does being in work mean these days? What does you know what does work mean? What you know, what are the difficulties that come with say being on the zero hours contract or juggling kind of two or three different roles? Or if you're a woman, sort of juggling work with your childcare responsibilities and where the tipping point is between paying for childcare and having enough hours of work and how that sort of stacks up with your budget. But yes, increasingly this is about people who are in work as well as people who are reliant on benefits. But I think it's really important that we don't put that kind of people in benefits thing to one side because every single one of us is only one small step away from being reliant on state benefits we are only one bereavement one relationship breakdown one long-term illness one redundancy away from having to be you know reliant on that a huge percentage of those people are pensioners as well who are older people people with disabilities so i think it's really important that we don't somehow almost make that differentiation i feel that if you're reliant on benefits you ought to be able to afford the basics that ensure your dignity and well-being while you are trying to find the right route out of your difficulties we should not be sentencing people to having to use washing up liquid to wash their hair while they're looking for a job that's simply unjust it's just not right what drew you to this particular area? How did you come to be involved in it? Because you speak very passionately about it. I mean, I think there were two big motivations for me you know, when I applied for this role. I, I mean, one, as we discussed, like I have a, I have a toddler and we know from this research that you are 
disproportionately more likely to um, experience hygiene poverty um, if you're from an ethnic minority and that those people are much more likely to be going without period products or without baby products and I think it's such a cliche isn't it the things that you realize when you become a parent but I think you know the idea for me of a parent having to reuse a nappy or not having those baby wipes those things which are about the fundamental health of your child was absolutely like just completely went to my gut and you know we also know of course that one in four admissions to hospital for children aged five to nine are because of dental health issues children don't have toothbrushes and toothpaste sometimes it is that simple and that's something that we need to do something about and can do something about urgently but another part of my background I used to be a teacher a primary teacher in Tower Hamlets um, in East London and it was an extraordinary part of my career that you know I'm had the most brilliant time and learned so much and I'm still a trustee of a multi-academy trust in, in East London and the families that I was working with there these brilliant gutsy extraordinary children and their parents a huge sort of over representation of all of the kind of indices of, of deprivation and struggling um, because of that and I think for me through this role if I'm able to help more of the families that I used to work with when I was teaching well you know that's not only personally extremely fulfilling it's also about making sure that this problem doesn't reoccur in the future that if those children are more confident going to school and not only more confident getting through the door but when they're there happier to participate in sports happier to go to those after school clubs those are the kind of things these, this research shows how it impacts children they don't want to do the whole range of activities that children need for their development their social development their physical development they're looking at all those opportunities for their future if i can help families like that and you know children to kind of get those opportunities then hopefully like we stop this problem recurring in the future and you know we do see that we had a, a young man who's um whose college attendance was really really low i think it was down to about 18 percent and we through our one of our partners got him some shaving foam and some deodorant and his attendance went up to 100 percent, and he ultimately went on to university so we know that those little things can just be the change that help people to kind of see a way forward and to, and to see the future so Ruth, you are talking to me during the Big Give week. So can you tell me a little bit about that and what your involvement is in that? Yeah, thank you. So the Big Give um, is a fantastic fundraising um, initiative. It runs for one week only from the 29th of November. And anything that you are able to give during that week will automatically be doubled. So we are looking to raise £25,000 towards our fundamental kind of absolutely critical work. And anything that your listeners can give big or small like two pounds will automatically become four pounds 20 pounds automatically becomes 40 pounds will allow us to reach more of the families who desperately desperately need our help so either just google and um, big give and look for the hygiene bank or go to the hygiene bank website which is the hygienebank.com and you can link straight through there to our big give giving page and as i say for one week only everything is is match funded is doubled so a brilliant opportunity to make your generosity go further so i mentioned Ruth that I have already been in touch about you know setting up a a hygiene bank near where I live that's another way people can help if they don't necessarily have the you know funds to donate they can volunteer can't they 
Totally, totally. And we're absolutely thrilled about that, Jen. And we, we can't wait to have you on board. But yes, there are lots of ways people can help. If you don't have time and you can't afford to give to us at the moment, well, follow us on social media. Keep you know pushing those messages. Help us to amplify this conversation because, as I've said a few times, that awareness is the critical first step. But yes, if you do have a few hours you can give us, we are desperately, desperately need of volunteers. And Jen, you're going to be joining um, over 550 brilliant people right the way across the UK who are giving their time to collect product from one of you know the sort of 900 odd drop-off points loads of those in boot stores by the way so really easy if you know if you're doing your shopping and you can put an extra bottle of shampoo into one of our yellow bins in boots then please go ahead and give in that way as well but yes you're going to be joining these volunteers who collect all of these products sort them out weigh them and then get them to uh, the community partners so they can go to families who need them and it is an extraordinary thing to do to make somebody's life just that little bit better but it's also an incredibly fulfilling and and fun thing to do for you as an individual so yeah come and join our volunteers follow us on social media give to us if you possibly can either kind of product or or monetary donations we'll be super grateful but yeah we're building a movement to end hygiene poverty for good and we need you on board and ruth where can we find the hygiene bank on social media our website is thehygienebank.com and then we're also on Twitter and Instagram as well. And they're all the local hygiene banks are there, but also kind of our national site as well. So yeah, come find and, and, and follow us and get all the information you need. Ruth, thank you so much for chatting to me. What a fantastic charity and what a massive difference you're making. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much. <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where the patriarchy isn't the only albatross we're dealing with as we discuss all things women's sport. I'm not going to lie to you, I am really chuffed with that one. And so to golf, congratulations to Sweden's Lynn Grant, who finished third at the season-ending Andalusia Costa del Sol Open to clinch overall victory in the Ladies' European Tour. It's a trio of Swedes at the top of the table. I enjoyed saying that, trio of Swedes, with Maya Stark and Johanna Gustavsson following in second and third place. England's Megan McLaren finishes in seventh. It's an incredible win for Grant given that it was her first season on the tour and follows her nabbing the Rookie of the Year title in October. Well done to her. Golf has been the subject of any number of bad news or ancient decrepit dude news stories in the last few years when it comes to women's sport. But I think they're making good progress as a sport and credit where it's due. The starting point was admittedly extremely low, but there you have it. So anyway, my point is I should mention that it was recently announced that the LPGA Tour, the Ladies Professional Golf Association that is, would increase its prize money pot to a record $101.4 million in 2023 or £85 million in English. As well as that, punters can expect a whopping 500 hours of broadcast television That is about 499 more hours of golf than I personally want to watch, but I am extremely happy that the opportunity is there for the athletes in the sport and the people who do want to watch, of whom there are clearly very many. On to boxing, and congratulations to Great Britain's Nina Hughes, who's won the WBA bantamweight title after defeating Jamie Mitchell in Dubai. 40-year-old Hughes was not expected to win this fight against previously undefeated Mitchell, who said Hughes was tougher than she expected. You know what they say about assuming, Jamie. What a year for Hughes, who only made her professional debut less than a year ago in 2021. That's her fifth professional fight, scenes. 
Now to Scotland for what I'm calling a third good news story of the day. Sport is doing a lot of heavy lifting in the good news stakes right now, isn't it? It was announced this week that professional footballers in Scotland will be banned from heading the ball in training the day before and the day after a game and that clubs will be told to limit repetitive heading in training to one session per week. What's all this about, Jen? I hear you ask. To which I respond, you should probs go and have a listen to my interview with Hannah Walker-Brown from back in April this year about her book, A Delicate Game, which is about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which remains very difficult to say. It's a brain condition caused by repetitive blows to the head. What, like little blows? Even something as minor as heading a ball? Well, I'm not sure it is that minor when you consider the weight of a football and the speed at which it will be travelling in a professional sporting context, but yes, even heading a ball. In fact, research by Glasgow University found that former footballers are three and a half times more likely to die from brain disease. I have to say, since reading Hannah's book, I find it impossible to watch a game of football in the same way. But one of the things she highlighted as a possible measure that could be taken was to ensure adequate rest between impact, hence the no heading before or after a game rule, because it's the repetitive nature of the impact and the lack of recovery that is really problematic here. This new rule follows on from previous guidelines in Scotland, which limited heading in youth football, a place that Hannah told me was really concerning because unlike top footballers, these kids are A, still developing and B, do not have access to the medics, physios, etc. that are in the professional game. Now, this is a great step forward, but I do think it's quite hard to enforce in some settings, the settings where it is probably most needed, like grassroots, for example. And by grassroots, I mean some kids down the park. But let's not make perfect the enemy of the good. It's reassuring to see a continued cultural shift here and a growing awareness of the issue. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah Dunleavy, it was your pick this week. Mm -hmm. So here's looking at you, kid. Hey. God, that makes me want to fucking vomit. But more on that later. <laughs> this week, we watched Casablanca, a romance from the olden days. Why, Hannah, why? <laughs> it was released this week in 1942 after being rushed into cinemas to make the most of the publicity surrounding the Allied invasion of North Africa. Never let an opportunity go to waste, Hollywood. Never. Tanks, tanks, tanks. <laughs> The whole thing was a bit of a rush in general and unusually the screenplay was written as they went along, meaning no one was quite sure how it was going to end, which is kind of ironic given that you'll struggle to find a person alive now who doesn't know how Casablanca ends, which kind of puts me at a weird position having never seen it before. Now, I know from last week, because I listened, that you, Jen, have seen this before. Hmm. And Mickey, you haven't. So I have not. just tell me a bit more. Jen, how come you ended up watching Casablanca? Now, you know what? I genuinely can't remember why it is. I was talking to my mum about it last night and I think I must have watched it in my film and history module in my when I was studying history. Or else there is a possibility, because I do remember talking to her about it, there's a possibility that I watched it with Carrie Ad Lloyd in our shared flat, because she's a big film buff. So that is also possible. Okay, Mick, how come you've never watched Casablanca before? 
Because it's an old romance from the past. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? The correct answer. <laughs> I went nearly 50 years without watching it and then watched it twice in a week. But please don't come to any hasty conclusions about why that is. If anything, I think it made so little impression on me the first time I watched it that when I sat down to write this, I couldn't remember a single thing about it that I didn't already know before I watched Casablanca. So I actually had to watch it a second time. I mean, what can I say about Casablanca that hasn't already been said? Well, maybe that it shouldn't have made a sexual predator the comic relief. (laughs) (laughs) But it would be churlish to call Casablanca anything but one of the most influential films of all time. It's seemingly in an eternal runoff for the title of best film ever with Citizen Kane and The Godfather. And it's almost permanent presence in popular culture, perhaps most notably for me anyway, when Harry met Sally means a good half dozen of its lines are among the most quoted Mm. in film history, Mm. Mm -hmm. even if you've never seen the film before. Two of those quotes are used in the names of other films, even if one, play it again, Sam, is actually a misquote. Do you know what the other one is? No. No. It's The Usual Suspects. Oh, Oh, Round Up The Usual usual Suspects. Of course. It's also one of three notable romances of the war period that all end insert pointless spoiler alert here with the couple not getting together at the end see also gone with the wind and brief encounter directed by michael curtis and based on an unproduced stage play it was filmed in morocco (laughs) of course it wasn't but it can claim some authenticity (laughs) given that its international cast contains just three americans it was nominated for eight oscars and won three Best Director, Best Film and Best Adapted Screenplay. It was also in the first batch of films to be preserved in the National Film Registry. Not bad for a film that everyone assumed would be as memorable as much of the other guff being churned out by Hollywood at the time. Let's get to the plot, which interestingly Roger Ebert once pointed out is exactly the same as Pamela Anderson's barbed wire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Roger. (laughs) When's that got a birthday? Please. Miserable 40-something, Rick, that's Humphrey Bogart, runs a bar in Casablanca, then part of French Morocco, a city that's teeming with refugees escaping war-torn Europe and hoping to get transit papers to Portugal from where they can flee to America. When some papers come into his possession, he refuses to give them to his 20-something ex, Ilsa, a super soft focus Ingrid Bergman, who has come to Casablanca with her husband Laszlo, that's Paul Henry, to escape the Nazis, who have already placed him in a concentration camp once. Turns out, Rick's still pissed she broke his heart when those bad German bastards invaded Paris and interrupted their burgeoning romance. Turns out, Ilsa still loves him. Turns out, the police captain is preying on desperate female refugees, but don't worry about that. Turns out Rick is going to do the right thing and put Ilsa on a plane because he's such a good guy. Apart from the fact he's now teaming up with a rapist. Lols. (laughs) The end. (laughs) And they walk into the sunset together while the fog. I thought Rick was 37 because at one point he says he's 37 and I went, No, you're not, buddy. That is a stage age. Actually, surprisingly young, given how old he looks in it. I mm. think he was in his early 40s. Oh, yeah, I think I he think was, think he was younger I think than his almost character is supposed to be even younger. Yeah. Tom Selleck syndrome right yeah. there. You're wrong about Selleck. <laughs> anyway, this is a massive tangent. <laughs> Sorry. I mentioned when Harry met Sally at the top. And in that, they have two conversations about Casablanca in which a young Sally says that Bergman 
should have gone. And then the older Sally says, no, I never said that. She always should have stayed with Humphrey Bogart. I think it's interesting because I think in life, actually, if a woman was going to have those two opinions, she'd have the opinion to stay with Bogart as a younger Mm. woman and make the decision to go with Laszlo as an older woman. Mm. But that's just me. So I'm going to ask you that question. Do you think she made the right decision? Did she make a decision? I don't think she got to make a decision. That's an interesting question, yeah. What's the thing that the guy says, under the circumstances, I will do as you say, or something like that? (laughs) Under the circumstances. (laughs) When he's got a gun pointing at him. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Yeah. which made me lol. Under the circumstances, yes, I think she made the right decision. Uh, And I maintain she didn't make any kind of decision at all. She wanted to stay, he puts her on a plane and then lies to her husband. There is a weird thing, a horrible moment really, at the end where the two of them kind of go, oh, all right, you know, like we've, we've both knobbed and no hard feelings. Off you go, you take her. <laughs> go on then. <laughs> You're yeah. just like, she is chattel, isn't she? Like, this is horrible. Well, women are absolutely objects and it is shown that they are objects, particularly to Rick. And he goes, oh, you've discarded another good one. Don't worry, there'll be more coming along. Mm. Fuck off. Seriously, yeah. I know it's 1942, yeah. but still, fuck he, off. He, like, considering this is meant to be one of the great romances or whatever, he is odious. Like, he is a proper... <laughs> like, at one point, I shouted, I'll just fucking get over you, you incel. Like, I was just like... He's one of these fucking men who just loves to be like, oh, she did me dirty. Like, just shut up. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't seem to have any understanding of human nature because... He was all like, oh, but you love me in Paris. I don't know, Rick. Maybe don't get involved with a recently bereaved woman. Like, maybe they're more likely to fall in love with you more quickly. He doesn't seem to understand human nature, which given that he, you know, he's in a war, you might understand human nature a bit better. She isn't recently bereaved, though. That's not true. She was married to Laszlo the whole time. She thinks she's recently bereaved. She thinks she's recently bereaved. And I also think that that must have legitimately happened so much during those wars or any war where you're like well I don't really know if I'm free to move on or not or just the nature of being away from someone for such a long time you feel differently about them after you've been through like these life-changing experiences that shit must have happened yeah a fuck ton right Mm. and aside from the fact that Rick is terrible Laszlo's all right I mean he's pretty hardcore he's escaped from a concentration camp he's pretty heroic Mm. I just think, why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want the nice hero rather than the bitter eye-bagged he's, man? He's totally, <laughs> he's so hangdog, so hangdog. He's totally the opposite, isn't he? So Laszlo has done all this stuff in the name of helping other people and putting his life on the line. And Rick's motto is, I won't put my head on the line for anyone. And it's just like, okay. Because yeah, one woman hurt me. Yep. Yeah. Who hurt you? One woman hurt Ingrid Bergman. She is so soft focus. She basically looks like a sort of blurry thumb, a beautiful blurry (laughs) thumb. It reminds me of that bit in Arrested Development where Job airbrushes the photo of of Jessica Walter. And then he said, I airbrushed it so much I had to check the box that said albino. That's kind of what she looks like in this. She's pretty young and beautiful. I don't know why it's necessary. It's a bit like what they do with, uh, you probably have less experience of this than me, but what they do with episodes of Made in Chelsea. (laughs) They just just stick an Instagram filter on them. (laughs) Like, this is what they look like. Uh, Yeah. 
Just just oh. blank stares from me and Hannah if the listeners are interested. What? <laughs> it's fine. Just watch it for the awkward silences, that's all. Uh, anyway, sorry. My fundamental problem with this is that it's a romantic film which I could not give a flying fuck about the central romance in it. And in particular, I find the here's looking at you kid form of romance to be absolutely fucking repulsive. It's one of my biggest problems with Sex and the City is the character of Mr. Big. He makes me want to vomit. And it's exactly that sort of... Anyone who gets involved in a relationship where someone refers to them as daddy, you know, or that sort of thing, you know, all that stuff where Hemingway used to call everyone daughter. I just, all of it makes me want to fucking vomit. Because <laughs> it's so awful. Like, so in Boardwalk Empire, one of uh, Steve Buscemi's ladies calls him daddy all the time. And it just really tickled me how much it made Gary squirm while we were watching it. So occasionally I call him daddy for a whole day just to really annoy him. <laughs> and because it really amuses me, but it is horrific and I don't really mean it. It's almost like it's a really, really fucking weird power play, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it just? Almost. Uh, yeah, yeah. Grim. At a time when men had all the power anyway. Yeah. So, you know. Grim. What, yesterday, today, forever. It's um, kind of like uh, the English yeah. patient, if the English patient had been loads shitter. I mean, I don't like romance, so it's not particularly fair. I do think the interesting thing about it is how the most famous film, like, quotes you can think of ever and we like when i was chatting to my mum about it last night we did mention gone with the wind as well there are like a few quotes in that that are just like really really famous Iconic. <laughs> exactly so i do think it's interesting that it is something that has been kind of like so quoted and so like redone i was trying to remember i think there was an advert in the 80s for like possibly Bernard Matthews or something like that where they uh, <laughs> did a remake <laughs> of this and uh, there's a boy in a sort of like Bugsy Malone-esque situation saying, here's looking at you, kid. It was definitely an advert <laughs> along those lines. It might not have been for Bernard Matthews. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon for the rest of your life. Just to like really bring the tone down there, uh, Bernard Matthews, lovely. Um, yeah, no, I do think it's interesting how much those lines have been used in other things. Like, I had a fundamental problem with it in that it's 1942, so the war is raging. They're a little bit too neutral about the Nazis. I was like, oh, come on, guys. Yeah. These are the bad guys. And they're all a bit like, are they? Well, they're just Germans in smart uniforms. That really annoyed me. And I imagine probably annoyed people at the time who were watching it in, you know, allied countries. All of it is like that, though. Because like, if you consider the end, right, when he kills Strasser, li- literally that line, round up the usual suspects, mm. Rick's killed someone, which makes him a hero. But they're just going to pin it on some someone other else. poor refugee. Mm, yeah. It's just knocking around. That's fine. And that's supposed to be like a nice, happy ending. It's such a cop-out, that ending. It's such a cop-out. It's so, like, painfully... Like, they they should have just let him... But I suppose they just, you know, audiences wouldn't have liked it, particularly at that time. They want to see the American win or whatever. But, like, it's so shit that they don't see... That he doesn't face any consequences for what he's done. Sorry, not not to sound like a Nazi sympathiser there, but it's just like the reality <laughs> is he'd have been in deep shit for doing that and it is ridiculous that yeah. that it doesn't play out. Would you like to know how Casablanca went down in Germany? 
Mm. Yes, given that last conversation, I'm intriguent. Warner Brothers released a heavily edited version of Casablanca in West Germany in 1952. All scenes with Nazis were removed, along with most references to World War II. I mean, what was left in it <laughs> at this point? I don't know. The West German version was 25 minutes shorter than the original. I thought like, you were going to say 25 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> The original version was not released until 1975. Oh, God, can you imagine that? And then that's just like an hour and 20 minutes of him fucking moaning, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was something interesting I found to do with its legacy and whether this is just, I've not checked it, so I might have made it up, but there's a certain music that plays when the Nazis are on screen, when stuff's a bit doomy. And it is very, very similar to the music that plays in Indiana Jones whenever the Nazis are on the screen. So that I felt quite warm about that, which is a weird thing to feel warm about. But it was very much about Indiana Jones and not Nazis, just to absolutely put that down in black and white. Not the Nazis. Fair dues. Mm. I like how we're all being very clear about not being Nazi (laughs) sympathisers. It's important to make it clear to people these days, Jeff. (laughs) Good point, yeah. When you come to a classic film, like 80 years after it was made, there was no way I was going to like this. I already knew how it ended. You know, I already knew all the major plot points, just by osmosis, all of that stuff. So I don't think it's fair. So I actually did ask my mum again about Casablanca. Obviously, she wasn't alive in 1942, but she would have seen it, you know, when it was more contemporaneous. Mm. But. Mm-hmm. And bear in mind, my, my parents met in Morocco. Did they? Yep, they did. I didn't she know She said to me, yep, she said, well, classic, isn't it? And I said, is it? And she said, they say, don't they? My mum couldn't even get that excited about Casablanca. I'd say Kef wasn't like wildly enthusiastic about it either. That said, Mickey, you told me you didn't mind watching it. I didn't mind watching it. I thought it was all right. I think because so much of it felt familiar, even though I'd never seen it before, because I recognised a lot of the lines, I was like, okay, just was a Sunday afternoon. I just sat and watched it. I, you know, the lighting's quite pretty. It's it's a classic. I can tick it off my have you seen these 50 films before you die yeah. list. And so I was like, okay, that's fine. I think, and this is me being very candid with you now, I think I might have had a little snooze when they got back together for a bit. <laughs> um, but I kind of knew what was going on and it was fine. So, yeah, I don't understand why it's a classic. I don't understand why people loved it the way they do. But we've discussed this with West Side Story and other old films that we've seen yeah. in that there, was, there wasn't there was as much choice, particularly because it came out during the war. You know, it's interesting, but I, I don't think it is to, to sort of skip to the end here. I don't think it has aged very well at all. Well, she's quite interesting, though, isn't she? Because Certainly. she, yeah, because she basically, she had an affair, didn't she, with um, Isabella Rossellini's oh, dad? James on a on a an international level yeah and she did i think no one would work with her is that what happened i don't know just throwing it out there this sort of romance because because to be honest actually i'm surprised in some ways that i didn't like it because if i do like romance i like downbeat romance i like romance that doesn't get tied up really neatly at the end Don't i actually like find history? that way more appealing although i can't say there's a huge amount of history in this i just yeah, I don't know. It just, it did nothing. It did nothing for me. But its charms are clearly there for some people. That's it, because that central romance with Rick and Ilsa is 
meh. You're not rooting for them to get back together, if anything. And particularly, you know, I realise that this is standard issue. We are who we are as women. But you're just like, fucking, don't get back together with him. He's an arsehole. <laughs> so there's no kind of like, oh, oh, it's so sad they don't end up together. I'm like, she had another lucky escape. But do you know what? The first time I watched this, the only other time I've watched this, when I'm, I'm sure it was while I was at university, one way or the other, I think I found it more like, oh, like then than I do now. Well, that's what I said about Sally. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. If you look at the two of the, just the two of those men and you think you're about to live through a war that you don't know how long it's going mm. on for, right? And you look at how these two men deal with adversity. Mm. There's no choice. Absolutely. Absolutely no yeah. choice whatsoever. You, there's no way she'd have wanted to stay with Rick. Yeah. If yeah. that's how badly he, he takes not getting what he wants. But yeah, he also tries to, like, guilt her into loving him again, which is just not attractive, is it? Like, if, if that's the only way you can do it, like, probably have a little think about that. Work on your personality, Rick, is yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> Right, have we talked about this for long enough? Oh, too long, if anything. drag this out? We've talked for as long as the German (laughs) version is. (laughs) In that case, Casablanca, rated or dated? Who wants to go first? Me, dated. Yes, big big old dated. Yeah, I would never get over the lols about sexually abusing women. (laughs) So yeah, absolutely 100% dated. What's next? Well, Hannah, I'm sorry. It is another romance. But the good news is it's got share in it. So I have selected... I think for Hannah, the good news is it's got Nicolas Cage in it. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, my bad. Completely forgot (laughs) about that. I've selected 1987's Moonstruck. I'm quite excited. Standard Issue for All Women.